In a world where people actually watch the stuff their friends recommend, this is I'll Look at Yours If You Look at Mine. Greetings, lookers. Welcome to another edition of I'll Look at Yours If You Look at Mine. I'll be your host, Ben Mitchell. And you can find me on Twitter and most social media uh, at RedHenMedia1. Look for that Red Hen icon. Today we'll be discussing Stranger Than Fiction, a Will Ferrell movie that came out in 2006. It's a feature film uh, that I would say is probably the romantic comedy genre. And I'll be joined today by my distinguished co-hosts. So let's join their conversation already in progress. Hiya, gang. Hey. Hello. Howdy. Hi. Good to see you all. Today with us is Jim Scott. Yeah, greetings, general listeners and friends. And Kat Ramirez. Hey, Ed. Just like I'm always real with my friends and family, I'll always keep it real with y'all, too. As always, grateful to be here. Grateful to have you. And Mr. Devin Schwartz. Now coming to you live in Technicolor, and the game is on. Good to see your face. And my good friend, James Pepe. Hey, guys, it's me, James. Uh, how often do you guys think... <laughs> how often do you guys think Dustin Hoffman goes to pools just to watch guys shower? <laughs> <laughs> Another gratuitous nudity scene that may not have been necessary. Or it may have been absolutely He's necessary. He's really watching those guys. Well, especially since the new scenes seem to involve t 12 angry men for some reason. <laughs> it was like an art installation, the way those guys were like dispersed throughout the shower. It was so weird. Carefully uh, placed. Yeah. The mizzen scene was on point. So obviously we're talking yeah. about... Uh, Stranger Than Fiction, um, which I had seen before in 2006, but upon rewatching it, it turns out I remember next to nothing. I don't know if you guys felt that way, but uh, before we get going on that, um, let's start with a little something I like to call... Hey, Jim, can I get a... Um... <laughs> Hi. Hi. I need to run down if your clients can you get that to me. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. The Rundown. So our boss, Charles Miner, just demanded a rundown, and Jim just handed the dossier to Kat, who will give us the rundown. What have you got for us, Kat? Yeah, so uh, this movie is called Stranger Than Fiction. Um, it's a 2006 uh, movie that was rated PG-13 about an IRS auditor named Harold Creek, I think I'm saying that right, who suddenly finds himself the subject of narration that only he can hear. This narration begins to affect his entire li life up to his imminent death. Um, the people who played or starred in this movie was uh, Will Ferrell. He plays the lead as Harold Creek with other big names, such as actors Dustin Hoffman, who plays Professor Jules 
Hilbert and his love interest, Anna Pascal, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I believe I'm saying that right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, along with Queen Latifah and Emma Thompson, who plays the writer and narrator of Harold's story. Um, the movie was directed by Mark Fisher and written by, or Forrester, excuse me, Mark Forrester, and written by Zach Helm. Uh, IMBD rated it 7.5 out of 10, while Rotten Tomatoes gave it a uh, 73% rating. So that's so far what I have. And I also have two interesting facts about this movie. Uh, Emma Thompson did not wear any makeup for this entire film, uh, which I thought was pretty dope. Um, also, Will Ferrell wore an earpiece that fed him Emma Thompson's uh, narrative lines in order to assist the other cast members in reacting more naturally to his lines. That makes that's sense. That's rundown. Yeah, that's cool. Interesting. Thank you for that rundown. You can fax that to your dad now. <laughs> As per the rules of the office. Um, yeah, other notables. Uh, John Cleese played a waiter. Uh, Linda Hunt played Dr. Mittag Leffler, which I have a sound thing. This is Linda Hunt. Let's see if you guys know her from something else. I'm afraid what you're describing is schizophrenia. Does anyone recognize her from anything else? I do, but I can't grasp what. She looked the so familiar to me. She played among, well, you probably know her best, as the principal from Kindergarten Cop. No? Well, she, she also uh, played, yeah. like, yeah. herself in The Incredibles, right? Well, no. <laughs> well, okay. Here's, I, okay, and I may be wrong about this. I looked it up because they, they don't list her as playing that character. Um, clearly, it's supposed to be her, and I was like, well, they rip Bad Bird, but I don't know if I'm buying that because it just, I don't, Brad Bird I, is the director, and I don't think that he's really a voice um, actor. So I hope it was her. Otherwise, they really were ripping off the She was also likeness. the very, very good narrator of the God of War series of games. Later revealed that she was actually Gaia, the character in the show, in the game, but um, originally just the narrator. She did excellent at that. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, I also know her as Hooper from She Devil. Um, so that was neat to see her. And then Tony Hale uh, played Dave uh, in the movie. He was Buster from Arrested Development, the, right. the one with the what out there. What hand. scene was, sorry, what scene was John Cleese in? I don't remember him in, at all. Um, I don't remember. I just remember seeing, uh, maybe he was cut. I remember seeing his name popped up under the, uh, under IMDb. Oh, okay. Um, now I'm also, not sure. Now I have to watch the movie again. Thanks a lot. Uh, less prestigiously, both of the Sonic commercial guys are in this movie. <laughs> both of them. Uh, they're the, oh, his weird. coworkers. His coworkers are the guys, both the guys from the Sonic commercials. You know, oh, the two guys in the I car. I knew I recognized yeah. those guys. Yeah, it's like funny because you only recognize them when they're together. <laughs> that's the only reason I would have recognized either of them is the fact that it was both of them. And I was like, oh, it's the Sonic guys. I recognize those guys. And I thought they're like, they. I thought to myself, they must be like, SNL cast members that I just don't know. But yeah, you're right. They're the Sonic commercial guys. Jeez. I don't know their names off the top of my head. I wish I did. But yeah, they're just the Sonic commercial guys. I've never seen them in anything else. I, I'm claiming just because this is how people get cast. One of the, they knew each, they either knew each other or they met each other on this work together, liked each other. One of them got cast with Sonic as a spokesperson and he suggested or recommended the other guy. I'm probably wrong but it happens in a lot of cases. Um, so that was a perfect segue into... 
This is Who Done It, the portion of our podcast where we figure out who submitted this thing, and uh, everyone votes to see who, if they can guess uh, who submitted it. And right or wrong, we tally it up. And at the end of the series, we award a Dundee Award to the person in the lead. So far, um, Devin, you're in the lead. Um, I think with you're three for three so far. Um, you're also one of the suspects, along with myself. So, um, Jim, who do you think submitted this one? Was it Devin or was it uh, me? Ben, it was definitely you. A writer, a story within a story, some of the cinematography they used, this screams you very loudly. So I'm going to vote you, Ben. This thing's so meta. And um, I'm not going to vote for myself. I'm going to get the, uh, the suspicion as far away from myself as possible. Uh, I think I saw that on Princess Bride. You do that trick um, if you're smart. So, And also, I've guessed Devin wrong a few times, so I figure if I keep guessing Devin, eventually at least I'll be right once. So <laughs> I'm going to guess uh, Devin for this one. Kat, what about you? Who done it? I'm also guessing Devin. I feel like this isn't a um, really pretentious film movie that I think is just enjoyable in a sense that I feel like Devin would really like and... Also, the fact that it's about literature and there's some, yeah, it's very meta as well. I feel like that can be up in, in Devin's alley as well. So, for sure, I think it's Devin. Okay. Devin, are you our red herring or not? Who did it? Was it you? You can tell us now if you want to give Pedro Pepe a... <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess I'm, uh, I'm forced to guess you, Ben, um, because we're the last two. So, yeah. My evil plan. Also, I agree working. with Jim's. Uh, I, I totally agree with Jim's reasoning. Uh, it, it is a total writer's film. Um, I, I, I do think I, I would have guessed you even if you weren't the last one. It was solid reasoning. Okay, James Pepe, you get the final vote. Who done it? Yeah, I'm gonna guess Ben. Also, although what he said a, a little bit before we start recording seems to indicate that it wasn't him. But uh, yeah. No, I, everything that Jim said, that math really adds up. Um, so I'm going to guess Ben. What what he said is a, 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 at the very beginning of the podcast is I think what writers call like foreshadowing or more of the throw it off of my trail, but seeded at the very beginning. I'm playing 3D yeah, chess well, here, guys. I saw this a while ago, but I totally didn't remember. It. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you caught on once again. Or I'm really, really bad at this hosting gig, so <laughs> yeah, right. we'll find out. How deep does this rabbit hole so, go, the ben? boats are all in. Yeah, exactly. Probably not as deep as you think. So will the perpetrator please uh, stand up and be counted? Uh, congratulations, Ben and Kat. You are correct. This was my film. Ironically, I wow. also have not seen this film in years. Uh, it was Son a favorite a when I was a kid. And uh, I owned it on DVD, watched it a thousand times, but have not in, in many years. So. You watched this as a kid? Yeah. That's, know, such, right? an odd, that's such an odd pick for 2006 in your childhood? Uh, yeah, I would have been, what, it. 11? Yeah. Wow. So yeah what, like pre prenatal? <laughs> you have revealed yourself, Padawan. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the votes have been tallied, so... Who the obviously the next one's gonna be mine then. So who won this thing? 
Uh, I, I have one with three correct votes so far. Everyone that I've been able to vote on, I have gotten correct. Um, coming in second, we have Cat uh, and Jim, both with two. Oh, Cat, Jim, and Ben actually all tied for second with three correct guesses. Um, but uh, both Jim and Cat. Yay, only loser. <laughs> Uh, but Pepe, you did get it correct early on, or, or, as early as you could have uh, guessed it correctly. So technically, you had a bigger challenge. Um, so I'd say that counts for something. Oh, that's right. I guess Jim, right? Isn't that yeah, yeah with Willow? Right. So it had the mm -hmm. widest pool. And available if I had been you. able to, if I had been able to guess my own movie, I would have gotten that one right too. I think. Yeah. Strangely enough, I don't remember guessing right. I thought I kept going with Devin and getting it wrong. So uh, no, yeah, you got you got Pepe my, correct. Uh, well, everyone got the lighthouse correct, um, and then you just got Stranger Than Fiction correct. So that's right. Yeah. So a three-way tie with two. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Well, we will present you with a uh, award next episode. Then, yeah, the clear the clear runner. Well done. Yeah, that's cool. And. Um, can we fight to the death for second place? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I need to get the sound clip from Star Trek now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, Let that uh, we need to build one of those like Tasha Yar arenas where she wears that like stupid fucking thing on her fist. <laughs> you, you guys know that? Uh, no, no, so. I'll okay. have to look it up. It sounds familiar. I'll have to look it up later. No one knows Next Generation, man. You guys. I thought you guys were nerds. You guys play D&D. <laughs> Jeez. Those early seasons, man. I'll tell you. They're terrible. Don't watch yeah. them. No. I know. That's, that's exactly right. I watched uh, seasons three through seven. I refuse to watch one and two. Yeah, exactly. They're bad. <laughs> yeah. It, those ones feel, not to get too much into a digression here, but those early seasons of The Next Generation feel a lot more like the original series in the tone and the writing. Oh, well, also in the skirts that the women are wearing. <laughs> They're just so short. Yeah, well, no, the guys wear those too. Um, and uh, yeah, after oh, yeah. that so that's right. first so season... Right. Yeah, after that first season, nobody, everyone refused to wear those, so they changed. I think they also changed the costume designer. I think the costume designer um, had to drop out of the project due to health reasons. And so the, I think on that show, the costumes changed more than any other. But we're here to talk about uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, Stranger yeah. Than Fiction. I actually have some, uh, some clips to play. Um, the first one I called Context Cookies because it just sounded dirty outside of, uh, outside of what they're actually doing. Do you like them? I do. I'm glad. Thank you for forcing me to eat them. You're welcome. Excellent. What on earth were they talking <laughs> about there, really? <laughs> I think, I think, you know, after I watched this movie, I thought to myself, does Maggie Gyllenhaal only take roles in which she's, like, sexually objectified and, like, totally cool with it? <laughs> she's in so many of these, like, weird the roles where that happens to her. Um, are we going to jump right into the fact that she is a manic pixie dream girl? Oh, definitely. Totally. The fact that I watched this movie as a kid, I like rewatching it now. I'm like, oh, this film shaped the way I think about women like for a long time. Like my my like picture of beauty is literally her in this movie, like to a T personality looks like everything. It's ridiculous. 
it literally shaped it completely formed my my it's like attractiveness big, big bags under the eyes you're really into that <laughs> totally yeah so for those that don't know said, oh go ahead go ahead sorry no i was just gonna say what was odd was having the the writer who's also a woman marry will ferrell basically doing the male gaze on her it was just such an odd part of it i was like oh it's so weird to hear a woman's voice literally describing him like sexually objectify her as the first time meeting her but yeah anyways no no that's a really good point and i actually forgot about that and i meant to bring that up too um it was that was a little uncomfortable as well it's it's this movie really took place in a different era did anyone else feel that like it was 2006 but um, yeah, I, have, I actually have a lot to it, say about that. Why is the world different today? Okay, <laughs> well, let me start. Wait the discussion. Yeah, yeah. So, um, let let me just go over this. The people don't know a manic pixie dream girl. I actually looked up the definition uh, for those that don't know because this is definitely falls into that category. This is like Merriam-Webster's uh, definition, right? No, well, it's uh something like that. I don't think it's <laughs> Merriam-Webster. Okay. Uh, it's I think it might be Wikipedia. Is a stock character type in films. Uh, film. I don't really care who coined the term. Uh, bu, 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 bu. Uh, she said that the manic pixie dream girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer directors embrace life and its infinite myster- mysteries and adventures manic pixie dream girls are said to help their mentors never grow up thus their men never grow up i meant the writer within the story not the writer of, oh, of the okay. movie good yeah, thank I you for clarifying that, she... that. The only thing that kind of breaks her from that mold a little bit, I do agree that she probably fits that archetype. I think the only thing that breaks her is just because one, she's an adult. Obviously, often we see Manic Pixie Dream Girls as as younger and the object of of younger men's attraction, um, but also that she like kind of owns a business. She's somewhat self reliant, but I think a lot of that self reliance is then kind of just taken away from her as she becomes the love interest. When before she's the love interest, when she's an and you know a, a, a foil to the main character, she's a much more interesting character. And as soon as she makes the turn to love interest, she becomes far less uh, 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 individual. That turned on a dime for me. It felt uh, forced. Yeah. It, well, the, I actually wrote this in my notes that the turn happens at a very specific moment. I don't know if it's realistic, but I at least see what the writers were going for in that as soon as Harold agrees to break a rule, that is the exact moment she falls in love with him. As soon as he accepts her gift, the cookies, and breaks the rule, she then is like, okay, you're willing to to you know break out of these these rigid rules that you're so so married to and again i don't think that's really a realistic way for a woman to just suddenly fall in love with a guy but that that is clearly what the writers were kind of aiming for okay but then real quick jim uh why did she why did she take pity on him was there maybe i missed a moment was there something where she kind of saw him suffering and then kind of felt bad about it i i may have uh just missed that because it just seemed like here here's some cookies to me yeah, it wasn't so much that I like he he was able to make her laugh and like kind of, uh, uh, you know, ingratiate himself a little bit. And she kept up her like wall and then offered him the cookies as sort of a test, basically. Um, again, yeah, the, the roadmap isn't completely clear, but uh, yeah, there, there were those moments they tried to fit in there. OK, go ahead, Jim. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Ben, and uh, some of the other um, <clears throat> some of the other guys that have said this it didn't feel realistic even if the writer said that you know she started to fall in love when he broke his own rule to eat the cookie 
at the end of that scene, she baked the cookies first because she already was feeling for him, you know, as attested by the fact that he wouldn't take the cookies with him, you know, and she was really put out. She was hurt. Um, so that attraction was the tracks were already laid. Um, but yeah, that asked that aspect of the movie didn't feel realistic to me either. Yeah, I guess what I thought it could use is just some kind of moment where she, we either see that she's attracted to him, like the reason, like something specific happens and we see it. And again, maybe I missed it. Maybe we all did, but um, it just didn't play as natural. It just kind of came across as, as uh, the script says that I'm supposed to like you now, especially if he's there to like do something that's so threatening to her life. Oh, also, 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 wow, that power dynamic uh, is a no-no. Am I, am I wrong about that? Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, awkward. Uh, it's not, not, a, not a good situation. A little unbalanced, right? Yeah. I also wanted to add what was odd, too. So the scene that Devin was talking about, the bus scene where he makes her laugh, that's kind of the moment that she like falls in love with him is he made uh, the joke it was kind of clever like he said something about he has he didn't bring his sociology or his sorry socialist notes to him to go to this anarchy meeting or whatever they were talking about and that's what made her laugh um and it was clever and, and everything but right before that she was not only very like put off by him and trying not to sit near him but she also called him a creepy guy and so it was just weird to go from like you just called him creepy and it seemed like you were very put off from him to now you're laughing at his jokes. And that's just like, I feel obviously that that message to like men watching this in the sense of like a woman can be put off with you initially, but then they can easily change their minds. And, you know, as long as you say something funny, they're fine. Yeah, no, I know. Right. Problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Zach Helm is the writer. Um, and he was writing in a different era and it's weird to me to see something that in my mind is like semi-recent from 2006 to be so cringy in a lot of those areas like that was another one that stuck out to me it was just like so he creeped on you and then now you're just going to turn on a dime and forgive him well that's probably sending the wrong message to guys a lot of guys are dense about this stuff i you probably already know this but uh Oh my God, I see enough videos of these poor uh, women being like basically harassed on the street and they're like recording the guy and he's still like, you know, following her and persisting. Like, just talk to me, just talk to me. It's like, you know, and back in 2006, I was probably oblivious to that. It's kind of before the era of smartphones and the internet. Um, and so, you know, uh, we were oblivious, but now it's just like, oh, that is like, that is just the wrong message to send. Like someone's just gonna, some that's just gonna reinforce that kind of behavior, and it probably did. Yeah, absolutely. Just as a, as a side note, I see it a lot as a a restaurant server because I work with a lot of female servers, and talk about a power differential, you know, between the customers and the servers, and some of the customers are creepy, very creepy. Yeah, so anything like that should just be if if you're going to be a writer that is working today, you have to be aware of what's going on as far as that goes and and be supportive of uh of discouraging that kind of stuff because man, they they barely need any encouragement uh 
people that will creep like that. And it's a potential threat to basically any woman walking around. Um, at, at some point, I remember, not to get too deep in, into this topic, but I remember becoming aware of just how probably dangerous men are to women, essentially, or can be, potentially, and how women may have to live day in and day out with that kind of, like, living around a bunch of men who could, all, any of us, potentially be a threat to them. And that kind of, like, I don't, I don't know, I don't want to put you on the spot, Kat, being the only female here, but, I mean, is that, do you find that that's the case with maybe you and your friends, where that's probably, like, a lot, because honestly... Like I, it was not something that I was ever aware of, and then like it's it kind of dawned on me, like oh my god, like this is like pretty bad. Yeah. I can imagine um, every day having to having to sort of just second guess every guy I yeah. walk walk past or whatever. Yeah, I I think the best way to put it is I think the way women kind of see men who are obviously you know strangers, people they don't know. Um, it's kind of like the the assumption of guilty until proven innocent, where I think for men, it's very much their interaction or their view of women is you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, so it's the it's we have the already this assumption that the the reasons behind men interacting with us may not be super genuine or super great. And until you prove us otherwise, then we'll find you as a good guy. But until then, it that's kind of the initial like reaction that women have with men. Uh, and obviously, like I can't speak for all women and, and all that, but I think generally speaking, that's how a lot of us feel. And um, yeah, and it's definitely like yeah. well, also recently there was a trend on social media about National Rape Day. And that was started from some guys making it as a joke and stuff. But, um, you know, the fact that that was that's something that men still find funny when it's really traumatic for women and so many and so, to so many women was is another like, you know, just indication of like, yes, we've definitely progressed from where we were in 2006, but we also have so much more to go. A lot of work to do. And can I say that once I, I guess what I was trying to get at um, is that once I kind of got a sense of what the day-to-day -day experience of many women is in that regard, I don't blame them for <laughs> feeling that way at all. And um, I, I do try to go out of my way to at least appear non-threatening if I, you know, like say it's nighttime and I'm walking out to uh, take out the garbage or something like that and a woman's standing out there. I, you know, I try to seem as not threatening as possible because I know that I, I don't want to put them through feeling like that kind of like, you know, do I have to look over both shoulders here just because there's a, a male present or whatever. And, you know, it almost like, as I say it, it almost sounds ridiculous, but I don't think it is. I, I think that it's probably that bad for a lot of people. And it's kind of crazy that I just did, that it took a long time to get that awareness for any uh, amount of, of males to understand how bad it is. And looking back, it's like now, uh, you know, with my eyes more open to that, I spot stuff that really bothers me, like in, in older media, even from 2006, I was surprised it was that bad. I had a similar sort of revelation to you, Ben, I think is the first time that I ever 
met someone on a on a dating app, someone that I'd never met before, right? But we were going to get together, right? And so I said, and she lived nearby, and the place we were going to go to was nearby, and she didn't have a car. So I just said, well, I'll just pick you up. And like, in internally, I'm I know like that I'm not going to do anything to this girl, you know. But she has no idea. She, I could be do I could do anything I wanted to her once she got in my car. And it was, and she, and so I didn't like get it at first. And she was like, no, I don't want you to pick me up or anything like that. I'll just get myself there. And I was like, okay, whatever you say. And then afterwards, after I like reflected on it a little bit, I was like, oh, I, I understand now. <laughs> it's gotta be scary. Yeah. It's very common also among like me and my friends, like, cause we obviously doing dating apps too of, of basically always saying like, you know, anytime you're meeting someone for the first time, meet them like midday in sunlight where there's a lot of light, like out in public where there's a bunch of other people, you know, it's just all these things that we have to make sure happens in order for us to just even feel safe to do it. Um, but yeah, so that is, that's very much the case. Becoming, becoming aware of privilege as a white male has been a very strange experience that has made me reflect quite a bit and made me empathize deeply with other people who don't have these things that I took for granted. It very much felt like it was in a different era though, to kind of continue with that theme. Um, his watch looked like a watch from like the not too distant future. If smartphones were never invented. That, yeah. the, that watch was so weird because at the beginning of the movie, they talk about the watch and like what it's thinking and like how it's like interacting with Will Ferrell. Uh, and as yeah. I was beginning to watch the movie, I was like, okay, so this watch is going to be like controlling him or monitoring him or something in some way. And then it, ha it has nothing to do with that at all, but it's all, but there are other parts where it's like, and then the watch got mad because he wasn't, doing something and it starts like beeping at him it's like what the fuck is this watch it's just nothing just stop writing about this watch and pepe you're a writer uh so did it bother you that they set up these conventions and then completely abandoned them well with the the watch thing just seemed so weird because it the movie talked so much about the watch in the first like five minutes of the movie that you're like okay i i'm getting the sense that this movie is like a sci-fi movie in some way and this watch is going to play a part in it like these these people are drones or something that are being controlled by the watch and then this narrator is going to be the one like controlling them via their watches or something and then it just drops that entirely but the watch like stays around and it didn't make any it didn't make any sense why so much attention at the very beginning of this movie was paid to this watch yeah i, I it feels kind of like a half idea uh I, I, there's a couple of those in the movie and i think if i would theorize completely you know uh, with with no backing that this was a much like headier film at one point with much more kind of like weird sci-fi stuff in it and that some like other writers got onto it and were like now nah, we're gonna cut this we're gonna change this we're gonna cut this we're gonna make it a rom-com i i would guess that the first version of this script had no romance in it whatsoever or very little 
and that they shoved that on top because at the time early you know mid late 2000s rom-coms were ev- fucking everywhere every other movie was a rom-com and uh, everyone was trying to like jump on that train and i think that that it feels to me like it was it was edited heavily yeah yes i think you hit the nail on the head that it was maybe overwritten and was the original name um little did he know maybe <laughs> Because that kept coming up like three or four times. Like it was really yeah. important. I was like, was this originally called Little Did You Know? Was that the working title? <laughs> well, you know, one of the other things that they started doing at the beginning of the movie was like all of that sort of like white text that was like flip that would like appear in the scene. And then um, it, it, I get I sort of made the connection later that like this is a representation of what's going on in his head. But it seemed like it was serving a completely different purpose for part of the movie. And then you sort of realize that it's like, oh, okay, these are supposed to be Will Ferrell's thoughts. They're like a representation of his thinking. But like, it just didn't seem, that didn't seem to be done very well either in the way, in the same way that the watch wasn't done very well either. I noticed that um, when he was having, it was a scene with with Dustin Hoffman and he kept asking Harold if um, he had counted the, the amount of steps there were in the staircase. And he kept saying no, uh, which interestingly enough, he asked like more than three times. Um, but that scene where they're in the bathroom, you quickly see him, you quickly see the, the white text, the numbers of the amount there is of soap in the soap dispensers. And I'm just like, what why is that important to add in this scene? I, I, I like I understand that's maybe part of his thoughts and stuff, and he's like a number person. But at this point for this scene, why was that important to still add? It just seemed odd. Maybe it was supposed to be a. Oh, sorry. I was just maybe it was supposed to be a, a Rain Man reference. Is like is that what it was? Is was that the joke? Because Dustin Hoffman does that stuff in Rain Man, right? Like he they drop like. Tom Cruise will drop like a bunch of toothpicks and Rain Man will be like, oh, 96 toothpicks or whatever. And there are some, I mean, legitimately funny moments. There are. I Well, there was one that got a belly laugh out of me, which I'll have a sound clip for. But it did seem kind of uneven in tone a little bit as well. Like they didn't kind of, this movie didn't quite know what it wanted to be. Or maybe there was a conflict within production about what it should be. Devin, you chose the Ooh, movie. What? I- what? Uh, go ahead, Kat. Justify this terrible movie choice, Devin. I am Devin. I am curious why you chose this movie, but let me just add this real quick. I I did notice that. So one point in one of the scenes, because this is a very meta movie as well, um, he was talking about whether the story was a tragedy or a comedy, and you know, Will Ferrell, he's like writing down, he's doing the marking while he's he's interacting with the baker, and. Um, he keeps writing down whether it's a comedy or or a tragedy. Um, and so I think the movie in general kind of makes us, maybe it was intentional, make us, makes us, the viewers, question whether or not this movie is a tragedy or comedy because you can see both elements of that in this movie. So, but anyways, Devin, tell us why you picked this movie. Um, yeah, uh, it, it was a couple things. Uh, first, say hi to my kitty. I can't tell you her name because it, it's a film reference and I might use the film that she's from in a future... Uh... In a future submission is it jonesy <laughs> no <laughs> um bad choice then 
No, I, I probably I probably won't. It's um, her name's Lilu from uh, the great sci fi movie Fifth Element. Uh, but anyway, I chose this because, uh, again, like I mentioned before, it was kind of a formative uh, movie for me when I was a kid. Uh, I, I watched it. It was one of the few movies we had on DVD and I watched it a ton of times. Um, and just sort of like the fact that it's sort of uh, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Like it, it sets up a lot of really interesting things and there's a lot of very interesting things about it. But I was never quite sure if it like stuck the landing really. And now rewatching it, I kind of feel like it, it didn't. But I kind of wanted more space to sort of talk about that. And I still enjoy it. I think it's a great movie despite its sort of, um, you know, awkwardness. But uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to talk to more people who were smarter than me and, and kind of talk through, uh, you know, what, what this movie is trying to do and if it succeeds or not. When you find those people, let us know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. That's another show, apparently. This is a very literature yeah. movie, so... I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I'm qualified to speak on it. <laughs> that was the parts I found more most interesting. What was that, Pepe? I was just saying there's so much weird stuff in this movie. And it's not even just about the story, like the story being weird, but like like Dustin Hoffman's office. Like what professor has an office that looks like that? And like, or like the room in which the, the, the woman writes is just like this purgatory of white with a table and like an old timey typewriter. Like some of those choices are just like, so were so odd to me. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, I don't know if we're fully in the discussion now, but I have one like kind of overarching thing to say about this movie. And it's that it like, I think definitively, and I think it's a big question we can all discuss, but I think definitively this movie is takes place in the novel that Karen Eiffel is writing, that this is we are not seeing reality. We are seeing a novel because there are so many like like Pepe was pointing out so many strange things like she lives that uh, she writes from this white void. And the first time we see her, she's standing up on her desk, holding out her hand, literally moving her hand like a puppet master moving strings. So like um, as soon as we see the author as a character, we see her pulling the strings um, there's the fact that, yeah, Harold Crick works in like the most office office that has ever officed. It's like there's like a thousand cubicles. The file room is this like white void with just like a wall of files. Like it's it's so everything is so bizarre and so exaggerated to the point where it's like uh, it, it's clear to me that it's a uh, that it's taking place in the novel. Um, when he goes yeah. to his co-worker uh co-worker's house and has to stay there his co-worker lives in the weirdest fucking house in the world it has this incredibly alien interior where like he just has kind of decorations like just placed everywhere it has these weird like windows when they show the exterior it does not look like it's in america it looks like something that would be like in tokyo or something like it's these weird shaped like buildings it's it's yeah it's just a lot of really bizarre choices that seem like the movie is trying to tell us that this is not reality that we're seeing that there's no way yeah and like where these people exist in like the strata of society like is will smith like upper middle or sorry is is will ferrell like upper middle class because even his buddy like you said they seem to just have all the money to do what like whatever because they they're in new york or something right san francisco i think because they have oh, the weird, really? like, uh, uh, accordion buses. I think those are only in San Francisco. I don't, I've only seen them. Oh, there. okay. Well, but, I mean, well, I mean, in San Francisco, you need to have just, like, Bezos amounts of money to rent <laughs> a shoebox to live in. So, right, yeah. And it's, yeah, and, like, and even um, even uh, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character, who 
I think we're supposed to get the impression like it doesn't have a lot of money, has a very nice apartment. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's a house. They, they're, she's in like a suburb. So especially if it's based in if it's based in San Francisco, the fact that she lives in like a suburb would, yeah, would make it an incredibly expensive place that she yeah. lives. Yeah. Um, another Did I completely thing that miss that itself... this was in San Francisco? I'm, it didn't I'm, feel like San Francisco. I'm not positive, yeah. but the buses don't look like New York buses. I don't know. That's the only hint that I have, really. Um, I'd have to come over it more. Um, but another another Thanks, thing, Maggie. another thing that implies my, my theory that this is taking place like out of reality is there's no like technology in this movie at all. Other than the watch, we never see or we might see a cell phone in the background of a shot, but we never have a main character use a cell phone once. We never have a main character use a computer once. I don't know. Wait, sorry. Again, the Harold Crick uses one computer one time and it's like an old CRT, like super big, fat white one. But like there there's nothing that really dates it um it, like definitively and again that makes it seem more like a book like there's not they, they don't bog themselves down with things like technology i just read that as being of a different era um but i i do see your point and um being that it is supposed to take place in a fictional world which i am kind of on board with you on that um, you do notice a lot of formalism happening, especially since you mentioned that, like thinking back now, it's like, yeah, that was uh, formalism here, 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 and here. It's just not quite real. Yeah. There's two things. I think, so one, it's really common to, with like TV shows and movies, like in a lot of media, for movies um, and stories to take place in environments that... Um, show more of an upper middle class kind of status. So, and I think that we're trying to kind of away from that now, but I guess in that, in that criticism, at least it's very, that's very common. Like you see a lot of, you know, older movies and stuff, you see that people who have like really minimum wage jobs living in very nice apartments in like a big city. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. Huge Um, trope. Yeah. But that, so that's, I think, might have just been during for the time and not necessarily an indication that it's fictional per se, um, as what you're trying to say, Devin. And the second thing is, or I guess maybe a question for you, Devin, is are you saying that you think the writer in the story is part of the story, is part of like the story overall? Does that make sense? Is Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I think that or, or maybe it's not just that the film is taking place in the novel, maybe it's that the film is taking place in the mind of this author. And that's why she imagines herself in it, because we see her daydream all the time. Um, so we see her capability to imagine herself in in her stories, because when she's picturing Harold Crick's death, she's picturing her dying. She is in the car seat driving off the, the bridge. She is the one jumping off the roof. So she is inserting herself as Harold Crick. Um, and because we see her capable of doing that, it, it it sort of implies, yeah, that she is imagining herself as part of this narrative. And maybe the actual book she's writing is a book in which an author is writing a book about, you know, because it's totally an author thing to write a book about a guy or a woman writing a book. Um, but, yeah, oh. there, there's all kinds of just, you know, there's even more examples I've thought of of, of non-reality, like the fact that as she's typing about the phone ringing, the phone is ringing in, in totally non-interval, like even intervals. It's when she types it, it happens, which like it it's, makes it very clear that she is creating this reality. I think and I think because I agree. I definitely think it's it is exaggerated and it's fictional. And I would my 
understanding of it is that it could very much be a movie about a writer writing this story. Like it's like a, I don't know, triple meta uh, movie basically, uh, which, which actually would go, um, which would fit what Austin Hoffman actually brought up this author. And this movie reminded me of this book specifically. And literally five minutes later, Dustin Hoffman mentioned this author and it was this book. It's by Italio Cavino and it's if on a winter's night, a traveler. And this is the most meta book you probably would ever read. And I was like, wow, this movie is really, really meta. And sure enough, Dustin Hoffman brought up that author. And I was like, okay, this movie for sure is trying to indicate how meta this movie is. And so I think it's very much plausible that the writer within this movie is part of the story as well. That's just my take. Yeah. This movie was meta before meta was cool or even maybe even a word. I don't remember using the word meta in 2006, but this, this movie had it in spades. Does anyone else get the sense that this was written for Jim Carrey and then they got Will Ferrell? <laughs> it does kind of have that like, yes, man, liar, liar kind of vibe. Like they're going for that. I don't know Enjoy. when, Oh, I think Yes Man was after, but Liar Liar was before. Um, but yeah, there is kind of that DNA there. Quick observations. Fender Strats. People who want to play guitar think that they want to play a Fender Strat. I think that the writer probably doesn't play. That's my guess. Or they specifically wanted him to pick that like generic one because he is a guy who wants to play the guitar. And maybe it was on purpose because it's like that's the one that comes to everyone's mind. See, so now you totally hit on what's great guy. about this movie because I can't I can't ever get over on it because there's always like another layer of uh, conspiracy <laughs> to fall yeah, back on. It, it kind of goes back into the unreliable narrator thing, although I don't think there's an unreliable narrator in this film. I think it's the same sort of thing with meta where you can just kind of explain away anything by making it meta, just like you can explain away anything by saying it's an unreliable narrator. Can you imagine the production arguments and conversations about <laughs> that? Like, you can defend anything in the film that way. Yeah. Uh, other quick observation. Uh, it's too bad they didn't have Queen Latifah, uh, like a fixer, working with George R. R. Martin. <laughs> Everyone with me on that one? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd rather Patrick Rothfuss, but I know what you mean. Oh, my God. <laughs> totally. Get her. Yes. Rothfuss. <laughs> how, much, how many times do I have to tweet at you, bro? <laughs> get to work love you i actually like his podcast that he did four episodes of and dropped out uh, it made me wonder if that was a real thing if there really are people out there made me wonder that, that like, too yeah yeah because yeah the we people need people need them but even that like even like even that idea now has changed right like especially with rothfuss right because now people think like, look, this guy doesn't owe you a book, you know, like you might want one, but he doesn't have to write one. You know, I don't I actually saying that that fake outrage there, I actually don't want him to write the rushed version of whatever the next book is. I'd rather. Right, him, yeah. It took him so long to write the first book, The Name of the Wind, that I don't want him to deliver something on Tuesday. I want it done right. Not on Tuesday, as the saying goes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like the evidence of that is like the Matrix movies, right? Or one of one of many things. Oh, we God, to, yes. Right? Yeah. I'm worried about the Matrix 4, I guess, in a, in a certain way. I want it to be good, but um, I'm not 
like holding out for it to be good. The Matrix one really should have been just a standalone. They really tied it up with a nice bow and everything. They didn't really need to go yeah. further, but the greed is there in Hollywood. Um, Dustin Hoffman, that first scene, let me give you a little sound clip. It's been a very revealing 10 seconds, Harold. He was there. That had to have been day one, and Dustin Hoffman was putting in his day one energy because he had so much extra business going on that whole scene. I mean, I didn't really need to see him slurping down that yogurt, but um, like that was him <laughs> like, hey, I'm going to be here and show you all how to act in a movie, um, Dustin Hoffman. And then as the movie progressed, he kind of like got a little more relaxed with that stuff and didn't have so much business. But Mo, the business in that scene. In that uh, first scene, too, he uh, drinks three different cups of coffee. <laughs> he is has a cup of coffee at the beginning of the scene. He walks with Harold, throws away that cup, gets a new one out of a machine, goes to his office, goes over to the coffee. He's taking like one sip of the one he got from the machine. He goes over to his office. He gets a pot of coffee from a coffee maker in his office, pours himself a third cup of coffee, which, again, like not to not to belabor it. It lends itself to a character, like a, a caricature of a professor that they're constantly drinking coffee, like to a gratuitous degree. Um, it makes it seem like he is, is a character in a book, not a real person. I couldn't get over his office. <laughs> I, there was things I didn't even realize either. Like uh, I'm, I'm looking at the IMDb trivia thing now, because there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. Like when he's told by the therapist to go live his life, or actually I think it was the author or the, the, the professor who tells him to go live his life. The first thing he does is goes to the theater and watches Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. That's the film in the theater oh, he's watching. Yeah. He literally goes to watch The Meaning of yeah, Life yeah, when he's yeah, told yeah. to go live his life, which again is a, an uncontemporary choice. They purposely chose a classic film to put in the theater because they didn't want to date it by putting an actual but, film. But also, like, don't put a funnier film than yours in your comedy. <laughs> Maybe maybe that's why John Cleese was credited, because he appears in that, maybe. But that's not oh, even John maybe. Cleese in that scene, I don't think. Oh, it is John. You, that Yes. OK, mystery solved. He just gets vomited on so many times. And that's it's such a good scene. Oh, man. Yeah, don't put a funnier film in your movie, in your comedy movie than yours. And also don't do like the, one of the funniest sequences in it. And then you said, little did he know. Little did he know. Yeah. It's a third-person omniscient. <laughs> I love that. What's a third-person omniscient, Kevin? It's little. It's, it's little. Did he know? It's a. Uh, it is a, um, a a narrator. It is a, a story being told by someone who is not the main character and also has knowledge that the main characters do not have. Well done picking that up. What I threw down there. Okay, you're like ten for ten now, bro. But see. This is the good stuff that I liked of this movie. It made me think about interesting things. Really like made that. you think about first, second, and third person omniscience. <laughs> it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies, dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? I mean, they even... The writer even thought, and I do, did give him credit for this, people are going to, that, that his de dying, Harold Crick's dying, is so important in the movie, they knew they had to deliver, but they also knew that people will have a conversation after the, watching the film about if the death delivered or not. <laughs> and then, so they put that in the movie. <laughs> they baked it in. I thought that was pretty cool. To be honest, that, that like, idea 
when I was trying, when I was thinking to myself about what this movie was about, I thought that that might be sort of the most, the sort of central part of it, especially when she, um, so she's like asking herself whether, of course, when I was watching this, I didn't think about it in this, as this was a fictional story all the way through. I thought we were seeing a real story with a sort of twist, right? And so I thought that the sort of question that the movie was teasing out was like, is this, is this woman's art more valuable than this man's life? And that's sort of the question that I think, because once Dustin Hoffman gets his hands on the story, he's like, oh yeah, it's the best piece of literature that like has been written, blah, 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 right? And so I thought the question was gonna be like, is it worth it for the world to have this book instead of this man being alive? And uh, that's an interesting question to me. Do you think that they answered it to your satisfaction or do you think that they kind of left that on the table? No, I mean, I think they sidestepped it. I don't think that's the question that this movie's asking. Um, but it was it was a question that I thought it might be trying to propose. And I mean, in a sense, it, and just by the fact that it brought it up in my head, it sort of does bring it up. But I don't think that that's the sort of aim of the movie was to like point at that question. I also anticipated that they weren't going to kill him, um, that they would sidestep that. And I also wanted to say that I, on that uh, topic of discussing whether or not it delivered, I felt like they set it up pretty well to be a big moment, and then it kind of fell short for me. But I don't think they were ever going to be able to deliver on that promise. They just made it, they built it up so much. I mean, I think I agree with Dustin Hoffman. I think this movie would have been better if Will Ferrell had died. Yeah, I actually even wrote in my notes that the first hour and a half of this movie are, like, very, very good. And as soon as Dustin Hoffman tells him that, like, you need to die to make this good. And it's like, it's clear that that's not going to happen. It's like, oh, the movie just gets worse. Like it would have been a very dreary movie. And, but I think it would be better if he, it if broke he just the tension dies. Yeah. Um, this is another like, movie where they, they should have chosen what kind of one path over the other, maybe. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that the movie, the movie itself asks that question, like within the movie, like, Maybe like again, maybe it's like a meta commentary about how like you know uh, sad endings might be perceived as better or more impactful, but like happy endings are also nice when it's like a, a nice character. You know, it's the exact same question that the author asks herself. We as the audience have to ask, like, you know, did this guy deserve to live? <laughs> Basically, this character deserved to live. But that, I mean, I, it's oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's interesting because most stories that we've ever watched with, you know, TV shows or movies, you know, they never kill off the main character. And it wasn't until Game of Thrones that that became a huge part of uh, of it. And I think that's a big reason probably why within the movie, even if that's where they might have originally wanted to go to, like end with actual Will Ferrell dying they didn't because they're like, well, we have all these big names. We want this movie to make a lot of big money and we can't have it end sad because that's not how you do it. That's not the formula. I think there's a reason why you don't often get movies that try to straddle that line 
and are also good. And the reason for that is because, I mean, even Dustin Hoffman even talks about it in the movie, right? Like, and you can think about this when you like a lot of Shakespeare's plays are easily categorized as tragedies or comedies because either they end in a bloodbath, right, where everybody's dead, right, like Hamlet, or they end in a marriage, which is sort of like code for sex, right, They or a party. And you see that a lot in um, the Marx Brothers movies. The Marx Brothers movies almost always end in like a huge party with like a song and dance number and even sometimes a wedding, right? And that's like a classic. And it happens, it's the same in Shakespeare too. Um, and that's a classic comedy ending. But in this movie, in this movie, you see like Will Smith is, or I keep calling him Will Smith, Will Ferrell is like tallying in his book the like points for comedy and tragedy. And he's got so many more in the tragedy column. And in a sense, he's right. It is sort of a tragedy because it's always meant to be that way because the woman is writing it that way. Um, but then they undercut that at the end by having him not die. But they also don't hit that final beat of having like a big party at the end. They have him in a hospital. So he's not dead, but he's not, he's not like... There, there's no big celebration at the end. Maggie Gyllenhaal's there with him. And so, like, it's sort of insinuated that their relationship continues. But you don't have that, you don't have that, like, catharsis. Generally, like, you don't talk about catharsis a lot at the end of comedies, but it's there. You have a sort of satisfying ending. Yeah. And so if you think about, if you think about, like, Hamlet, right? If, if, if you read all of Hamlet and then right at the end before everybody dies... They like worked it all out. That would be shitty. That would suck. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Like you want that ending where everybody's dead or there's like a huge release of emotion and everybody's happy. And so I think that it's very rare to find stories that um, can nail that, nail that sort of like having its um, sort of foot on both sides of the line. I mean, I consider it brave when people completely buck that underlying structure, but it's, I think that it's the theory is that it's kind of a natural human structure that exists across cultures. And so bucking that uh, you do so at your own risk and at the risk of the project that you're working on. Well, in a way too, we've sort of lost a lot of that DNA in our storytelling because of the prevalence of sequels. Like the idea that the story has to stay loose enough to continue means that you can almost never have a cathartic ending either way, because if you have a big party where everything's resolved and everyone's happy at the end, that there's no sequel there. And if you have a like a really tragic ending where everyone's dead, there's no sequel there. So almost every movie has to land somewhere in the middle just so they can have the potential to go on and make sequels. I'm of the mindset that each movie should stand alone as its own story, even if there are sequels, and those are the yeah. best ones. But people who don't do that, I think, usually suffer. I think, uh, Jim, you had something to say. Yeah, well, I was going to pose a question, um, just based on, um, on what you had said, uh, Pepe, as far as him being broken up in the hospital, and it definitely was a return back to that utilitarian surrounding, right? Very drab. Um, all the, you know, all the furniture in Crick's apartment was um, purposeful, right? 
Uh, there was no art. There was none of that. And he's sitting in the in the hospital room, and uh, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's you know character in the movie, his love interest, comes. Do you feel like that actually is the catharsis to the movie, and that's how it was meant to play out all along at the end? Is that the end? Of the, I might just be misremembering the end of the movie. Now that you mentioned it, is the end of the movie them in bed together? Is that the end of the movie? They do show a flash of that, I think. She climbs into his hospital bed. That's what it, he, she's actually oh, in like a, right. what looks like a very uncomfortable position. She's like draped over him. It's like that would probably hurt like hell in his position. No, I th- if that's if that's what you're talking about, Jim, I think that's them trying to do both to have the tragic and the comic ending at the same time. But it but to me, at least it, it it's not very satisfying because you have this you have the story of this thing. man. Yeah, you have the story of this man who like. <clears throat> like we've sort of been hypothesizing, it might be better for him to die to for, for, for the sake of the story, right? For the sake of the benefit of the story. And so they kind of want that. And so they're like, well, we'll have him be gravely injured, but then we'll also have him get the girl, which is what how you want the comedy to end, right? So they're trying mm-hmm. to, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, and just, I don't know, to kind of wrap up with one last positive thing, the thing that I really like about it, that I just noticed in my notes I had forgotten to mention was just that I'm a real sucker in a movie for uh, like setting stuff up really early, like like things that make no sense when they happen. And then like when you're given context, it all like is like snaps into place. Mysteries obviously do that a lot. But in this case, it was the fact that in very, very early in the film, like one of the first shots we see is Harold's, you know, murderers, essentially the little boy and the woman, the bus driver, we follow their story throughout the entire film. We keep seeing shots of these two people and we have no re- like no idea why they're important. They're just like there. Um, but it's all like dominoes that she is setting up, um, which, again, in a book would be great. Like that would that would totally work. I feel like in a novel to have yeah. these little dominoes set up that that then when the moment happens, that that makes them important. Suddenly everything makes sense. I'm a real sucker. I love that. That shit. Yeah, that's great stuff. I love that too. And functionally, that's either called the. It sounds like more like this is just a callback, um, but also there's a function called the plant and payoff, where you show a character doing something that seems innocuous but like kind of interesting um, that later pays off down the road. Um, for the one that I remember from film school was, and oh God, I hope some of you have seen this. Um, oh, what was the movie called with uh, Mel Gibson? Um, Lethal Weapon, I think. Yeah. Uh, they show him in the beginning, like, making a bet that he could escape from a straitjacket. And everyone plays bets, and it was just kind of a fun and game scene. And he, like, nobody knew, but he could dislocate his shoulder and get out of this thing. So there's the plant, right? It paid off later when uh, he was tied up and was able to dislocate his shoulder and get out. So what it is, if you don't have that plant, when the payoff happens, people are going to be like, I'm not buying it. That's stupid, right? Like, okay, so he can dislocate his shoulder. But if you set it up before in Act 1, then people will accept it in Act 3 when the character does it. Yeah, and then there's the separate but but related, obviously, concept of Chekhov's gun and, like, that mm-hmm. we as yep. consumers of entertainment know that everything we're being shown should be important. Maybe it's not going to be if it's not a very good product. But if it's a good piece of entertainment, we know that everything they show us is going to be important. So showing us That's these right. absolutely random characters we know nothing about has to mean something eventually. And so we anticipate it and it builds tension in a way um, that when we finally get the payoff makes it more satisfying. Well, speaking of Chekhov's gun on, in a very literal sense, which it's so interesting, all the 
different be- beats and points that they hit as far as literary focus. But I mean, when she writes in and little did he know he was going to die, you know, that sets it up as a viewer. Oh, and, and more to uh, what you were saying, Kat, is this a comedy or is this a tragedy in the, in the meta sense, us as an audience trying to figure that out and knowing that that is looming, you know, over us is kind of Hitchcockian in a way, you, you, you know, and I thought the movie was very interesting. And a lot of those little elements that you were talking about that pay dividends in the end. So, so for instance, one of the points that I had seen um, was it was obviously that Harold Crick um, had kind of a um, meaningless, meaningless job. Um, just kind of, you know, he, he had control over his routine. Um, he said, you know, at certain points, you know, everybody hates a tax collector. And then you see the author as well in that very drab, um, nothing around writing that that actually mimicked her life as well. And the two people that kind of helped them through that crisis, so to speak, were um, other um, uh, other uh, literary types. And all the mental health professionals, there was always asked the question, um, are you suffering or what are you suffering from? Are there something wrong with you? Or that sounds like schizophrenia to me. But the literary agents took it from a completely different angle. And those were things that started reaching, I guess, the completion of the story towards the end. And it was interesting. Jim Scott, here's a question for you on that note. Um, sure. With the with the therapist immediately proclaiming that it sounds like schizophrenia with not, not saying you have to answer like, you know, with a hundred percent assurance or, uh, but, you know, studying psychology and such, is that accurate that a, uh, that a therapist might jump in and say that right away? Um, is it most likely schizophrenia or are they more of making a joke for lay people? Um, there's a lot of textures to that question that you just asked. Um, what's, what's your take? Uh, there, there could be other, other causes definitely, but schizophrenia is kind of the, um, uh, what they call an exemplar. So when you think somebody is quote unquote crazy, um, that is what you think of. You think of voices in the head. You think of the symptoms of schizophrenia. So that one always kind of leaps to the front. I, I will finish on an on an up note here. Um, this was an example. Uh, this clip's an example of where I thought the movie was hitting right on if it was going for a more comedic tone. And this actually made me laugh pretty pretty good. How do you know her? I'm her brother. Her brother. Her brother-in-law. She has a sister. No, I'm married. I'm married to her brother. Not, not in this state, the one over. Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. No. Okay. Listen. I'm one of her characters. I'm new. I'm in her new book. Oh. And she's going to kill me. Not actually, but, but in the book. But I think it'll actually kill me, so I just need to talk to her and ask her to stop. 
So this is where the movie was working the best for me. And if they had struck this more consistent tone throughout, I think it could have been great. And I think there were a lot of great elements to it and a lot of uh, interesting discussion to be had. While we tell you our grades, why don't we hear a word from our sponsor? Hey, friends, are you suffering from writer's block? Talk to your script consultant about Write You In. In clinical trials, writing yourself into your own story was shown effective in getting a reaction of pretty neat to the people you pitch your idea to. Side effects include burning ears and severe meta reaction that can lead to a story failure. If you are feeling self-reflexive, tell your script consultant right away. If you can't afford Write You In, then Save the Cat may help. Write You In, because nothing else effing worked. So what the hell? I was supposed to do the beep sound. So, here we go, gang. It is time to grade. Um, So, uh, we're going to go around, and after our discussion and viewing, we'll land on uh, how this movie fared. Jim Scott, why don't you kick it off? What do you grade um, Stranger Than Fiction? Sure. So, uh, I I would give it a B. Um, there was a lot of muddied kind of notes as shown by my own notes that I, that I took about it, but they were very interesting. It didn't strike me as the typical story, even though it was a, you know, rom-com and those are usually not my thing, but, uh, the moments in the story, to quote a quote, the moments in the movie that were both magnificent and mundane. So for that, I will give it a B. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, I thought this movie was really clever about being self-reflexive, but, um, while being clever can get you far in life, almost to the top, but, uh, it can't get you everything. So I put it at a, about a C plus, I thought it had really great potential and there was a lot of interesting elements that kept me engaged and interested throughout. But again, I'm going to go back to the tonal thing. Uh, it just didn't all work out harmoniously. Kat, what did you think? Um, yeah, I'm going to agree with you, Ben. Um, I'm going to give it a C plus as well. I think there was a lot of great things about this film. Um, I think it was very clever in many ways, as you said, but I think the delivery just didn't, didn't really hit where I thought it was going to. Um, and so for that reason, I, I want to give it a C plus. And Mr. Devin Schwartz, where are you at with this? Nostalgia glasses and all. Yeah, I think that um, for me, this movie is just like it's the perfect movie for me up until the last half hour um, where I think it just doesn't quite stick the ending. Maybe he should have died. Maybe, you know, they they should have tied more things in that they set up and kind of forgot about. Um, But for me, I think just uh, because of that, it hits a B plus. Okay, and James Pepe, you get the final word. Yeah, you know, this giving this movie is a grade a grade is hard for me because um it didn't i didn't like the movie but it didn't make me like mad or anything like it wasn't i didn't have any aggressive feelings towards it really so i kind of just had kind of like a meh reaction to it um but there was some merit to it i think there were at least one or two jokes that made me laugh and for whatever reason, the scene where Will Ferrell is talking to Maggie Gyllenhaal on the bus, and he, because of the way he's sitting, the way that the like 
motion happens on the bus and the way it's filmed. I thought that was really cool. I thought that was a really cool scene. I liked that scene too. Yeah, it was it was a weird it was a weird way to have the character or it was an interesting way to have the characters moving and sort of like traveling in and out of eyesight of one another without them really moving, without with them staying seated. Um but that being said, I think that this movie um Gets the lowest passing grade possible, which is going to be a D, I guess. So while it didn't make you angry, it just didn't deliver for you and it was a man. Okay. Yeah, it was just like, it. yeah, like it was, it was like drinking water. Sure. It does, it does <laughs> the thing. You have watched a movie at the end it of it. It does the thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, okay. So where does that leave our GPA for Stranger Than Fiction? Devin? That puts it at exactly the GPA of Horse Girl, C plus 2.4. Which is interesting because we had similar issues that we found with both of them. Yeah. Just swap uh, Unreliable Narrator for Meta Commentary and it's basically the same movie, you know? <laughs> or just like employment of bad tropes. Yeah, well, this one I think had different different reasons that we didn't like it, though. Because of yeah, the like yeah. manic pixie dream girl, and I think of a, I think a little bit of the like magical black person too with Queen Latifah's character, right? Yeah, she was the only person of color like in the whole film. <laughs> be better Hollywood, but they that they're at least waking up to some of this stuff at least recently. But a lot of work to be done there still, um, and it makes your job tougher as a writer to push beyond those stereotypes and those tropes that have been set up and are so easy to copy. Uh, to push into new, but uh, I think that if you want to be a writer, and I do, that you have to put in that effort. Um, I have an example of something that I brought up before between the non-diegetic and the diegetic sound that was really displayed pretty well, so I grabbed it, and it's a quick clip, so we'll uh, wrap it up with that. Um, so diegetic means it ha the sound happens in-world. Non-diegetic means it happens out, out of the world, like part of the score or something. So this played with that, and I really love when movies do that well, and this was a cool moment. Trying to pick up a girl while my eyes fill up with this when this girl's all I call the Yeah, the chemistry was right. He's singing, it pops over to the song. Well done. Good good filmmaking bit there. Um so I well we don't have a new episode to roll for and you all know it's going to be mine so i'll just reveal the next film i'll do the dice roll for the fun of it what would <laughs> this be a zero a zero dice or i guess a one one, D's, one D's D1? zero no a d1 yeah 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 okay you have to flip a you have to flip a coin you have to flip a coin actually they do have d1s they're just mobius strips <laughs> but you have to flip a coin and <laughs> get it fun. to land on edge yeah, yeah, there we let's go. Flip a okay, D1. so let's imagine that I'm doing that right now. Oh, it did. First shot right out of the right out of the wow. uh, gate. Yeah. So uh, right on the edge here. I wish you guys could see this. It's beautiful. Um, so the movie we're going to be watching is a Netflix film. It's called Dracula. It came out in 2020. Do not think that, uh, do not mistake this for a miniseries. This is uh, three standalone films. We're just going to be watching the first of the three feature length films. Uh, it was produced by Netflix. 
I think it's a pretty cool new twist on the Dracula story. It's been updated. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it, and we will be watching that and discussing next week. And I'll be very curious what you guys uh, have to say about it. Uh, so I think that's about it. We can just wrap things up. Oh, there's someone at the door. Who's there, Ben? Just one more thing. Oh, Lieutenant Columbo. Surprise, surprise. With just one more thing, uh, we're going to quickly go around on a roundtable and ask everyone to do a kind of a Twitter-length post on something that they want to discuss outside of the podcast this week. Jim Scott, what do you got for us? Just one more thing. Sure. So, um, Catherine, when you were sharing these podcasts from week to week, it really um, helped me to rediscover my love of podcasts. It's kind of, you know, I listen to them and then I forget about them and I listen to them and forget about them. But one of the staples that I've been listening to over the past couple of years is called Hidden Brain. And it's the host, uh, Shankar Vendantam, I think is how his name's pronounced. I think that's right. Yeah, um, he uses science and storytelling to reveal unconscious patterns that drive human behavior, shape our choices, direct our relationships. And one he did two, two weeks ago, somewhere in there, was on laughter. And um, it proceeds with a four-year-old laugh something like 400 times a day. But a 40-year-old, it takes them three months before they get to the same amount of laughter and how that shapes um you know our relationships and um our being so it's very interesting that is interesting and i remember like a desmond morris thing which i've heard since that he's been wrong about a lot of stuff uh um but he was interesting in that he studied humans in a zoological fashion like that we're animals because uh i happen to agree with him and that aspect um but anyway he would record like different people and see how much they laugh throughout the day and adolescents apparently laugh more than anybody and in the evidence he showed was like some kids at the mall back in the day when kids went to the mall. And it was just like laughter, 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 laughter. And then like uh, us grownups, it's just like, yeah, uh, maybe once or twice a day if we're lucky. Yeah. So, why I, so serious? I wonder what that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I wonder why that is a function, uh, something about a growing brain or uh, socializing or something. Fascinating stuff. I also listened to that one. And uh, he has a great uh, narrator voice, too. I really like the way he, he does his stuff there. On hidden brain so go out and check that out if you haven't already my thing is going to be a vr thing once again because that's been big in my life um quest 2 dropped uh version 28 of their software and boy is this a revolution talk about untethered so the idea with the quest 2 is that you can play untethered however if you want to play like the high-end games you before this had to plug directly into your computer or laptop to run them and have like a, a cord but now with version 28, if your internet's good and your computer's fast enough, um, you can play these high-end computer games in VR in the Quest 2 without a cord. And so I've been enjoying that gameplay a lot. That's a revolution there. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't already, yeah, it's cool. I actually reset up my internet to Im improve the uh, connectivity, and it works great for me. And have you, I just tout that. Have you gotten Half-Life Alex to run like that? I haven't played it yet. Um, I haven't had a lot of time. It just dropped. Uh, I played a high-end graphic game uh, that's like kind of a dungeon uh, quest game. So I was, you know, just enjoying that for a few hours. Can't wait to play it again. Um, so yeah, another VR thing for me. I promise next week it won't be VR. But that was a big drop. Everyone was anticipating it. 
way to deliver. I hate to say this, but way to deliver Facebook. I'll just say way to deliver Oculus. I just can't. I just no. You have to thank Zuckerberg. You have to thank Zuckerberg personally. God. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I'm sure he was involved. I'm sure if he was more involved, he would have messed it up somehow. So, uh, thank you, the Oculus team. (laughs) Okay. So, Cat, what do you got for us this week on just one more thing? So I already mentioned this earlier, but um, I was going to save it for my just one more thing. Since we've been speaking about a meta film, uh, I just wanted to drop this book Uh, again. Italio Calvina. If if on a winter's night, a traveler, it's a bunch of short stories. It is a very interesting read. Um, but since I already kind of included that, um, I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, something that's local here in Santa Rosa. Um, so if you're in the area, please check out the Monarch Project. They are a bunch of murals that are in the Roseland area uh, near where all the taco trucks are. Um, there's a lot of them now and they're really beautiful and gorgeous and huge. So definitely check it out if you're in the area. Is that like southeast Santa Rosa? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah, I used to live over there. Oh man, did I miss going out at two a.m. to get those tacos? Um, that's that's cool. And Calvino is C A L V I N O for those that are listening right. in. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely check those out uh, if you want some more meta Calvino. If I'm saying that right, Devin Schwartz, Mister Devin Schwartz. Sorry, I forgot yeah. the Mister. <laughs> I've been reading. <laughs> what do you got uh, for us? Cam- Canto. It is a comic book. I'm holding it in an awkward way to try to keep the page. C-A-N-T-O. Um, yeah, C-A-N-T-O. Uh, like the Pokemon region, except not spelled that way at all. Um, and uh, it's a really cool. Co- this is an anthology. This is the whole first run. The second run's coming out soon, I believe, if it's not already out. And uh, it's cool. It's got a really interesting art style. It mixes realism with these very strange looking characters. Um, here's a nice center spread. Um, but the, yeah, the art's really good. The story's really interesting. It's about these sort of cutesy characters. Um, very, it reminds me a lot of Hollow Knight. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's very compelling, very interesting. It's a new character for me. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it before. I picked it up at the comic shop a week ago and I'm, I'm loving it. Great. Thanks. Always look for, always looking for a new graphic novel to check out, especially a series I can, uh, dig in deep. James Pepe, what do you got for us this week? Yeah, so today I went out of the house and went to a bookstore for the first time in a very long time. I I have to admit, I do do a lot of book buying off Amazon, but I went to a bookstore. And the reason I went to a bookstore is because I I loaned out my copy of The Hobbit that I had, and I never got returned to me, so I needed a new copy of it. Um, But I was reading the introduction by um, Christopher Tolkien, who's Tolkien's son. And from what I understand, Christopher is doing his best to ruin his father's legacy, (laughs) from what Uh I understand. Um, But I was reading. I was reading his introduction and he talks about how his dad used to stand in front of their fireplace and tell them the stories that he was writing which sounds incredible. Um, but so not only, so the point is, is that not only was, is Christopher Tolkien, from what I understand, it may not be the case, trying his best to destroy his father's legacy, but he also seems to have vented like toxic fan, like, uh, I don't know what you call it, like toxic fan syndrome. syndrome. I don't know. Yeah. So he, he, re, he, re, he, he relates this story um, about, this one time when his father was telling them, he and his brother, the story of the Hobbit. He says, uh, he also remembered, th- that is to say his brother, 
Christopher's brother, he also remembered that I, then between four and five years old, was greatly concerned with petty consistencies as the story unfolded, and that on one occasion I interrupted. Last time, you said Bilbo's front door was blue, and you said Thorin had a golden tassel on his hood, but you've just said that Bilbo's front door was green, and that the tassel on Thorin's hood was silver. At which point my father muttered, my father muttered, damn the boy, and then strode across the room to his desk to make a note. Oh, that's so legit. <laughs> I know, right? That's, yeah. That's fantastic. So, uh, my official one more thing is go to a bookstore. <laughs> uh, if and, it's uh, safe. Yeah. If it's safe, right, yes. Especially do if you've been vaccinated. It, if it's safe. So I also wanted to point out I have that exact copy of The Hobbit too because I found out I don't have it. And uh, I, I showed my wife the one of the fan edits of the three the Hobbit trilogy where they edit it down to be a lot like the book rather than the spread uh, the mess that it is trilogy. Yeah, yeah. So they pulled a pretty decent fan edit out of it and she really liked it. So I got I bought the book for her and stuff. I ended up with that same one. So I'll have to read that caption. Yeah, you know, one thing he one thing he said just real quickly is that this piece of art so this this is something that Tolkien drew, right? And he said that the front is supposed to be like the good people in the book because there are the eagles. And then the spine is like the road to, to the mountain where Smog lives. And then the back is dark and the dragon is there. So it's sort of like the whole, it's like the good and the bad. It was interesting. That is interesting, huh? I didn't notice that. I did like the artwork on front. I had no idea that Tolkien it's super cool. uh, was the artist. Yeah. Those maps on the inside of the book, too, are his maps. Tolkien drew those maps. Oh, that's great. What a nice addition to the book. I I, I thought it was... Uh, I just had a paperback before years ago, uh, so it was neat to have, like, a nice hard hard copy of it. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories to this day. But anyway, it's uh, sadly, it's time to say goodbye, uh, so we'll go around. Uh, Jim Scott, are you accessible on uh, social media or out there on the Internet yet? Um, no, social media forthcoming. Okay. Fair enough. Well, um, thanks for being here, and uh, we'll see you next episode. Uh, Kat. I'm Catherine Ramirez. It's been real. Catch me on Instagram at Kat Ramirez with two Zs. See you all next time. Two Zs, folks. Uh, Mr. Devin Schwartz. You can find me on Twitter at Devin Schwartz one and uh, game over, man. Game over. Like I'm free, I'm free laughing in anticipation. <laughs> James Pepe, try to follow that up, please. I don't know what I can do. Uh, I don't know. You got nothing. Can we? Can people yeah, find you anywhere yet, or is social media still evil? No, it's it, uh, no. It is. It is. Will be evil into perpetuity. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Thanks, all my co-hosts, for being here. We'll see you next week for Dracula 2020, which is streaming on Netflix. Uh, just watch the first one. You do not have to watch all three. They're each independently a feature film. Um, so I like how I wrote a, a big caveat essay along with mine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this has been uh, I'll Look at Yours if you look at mine. And now that you've looked at ours, we hope to look at yours soon. Just like Dustin Hoffman in that shower. That's right. <laughs>
If you enjoy the show, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, ring the bell, give us a five-star review, dot your I's, cross your T's, sign here, initial here, and don't forget to tell your friends. Until next time, lookers, keep on looking. Red Pen!